First scripture reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, and verses 12b through 19. Listen to the word of God. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David and all the people with him set out and went from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abendab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abendab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went in front of the ark. David and all the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and hopes and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obediam to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who danced before the Lord with all those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. David danced before the Lord with all his might. David with David with girded was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. They brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and offerings of well-being before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and offering of well-being, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed food among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, to each a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people went back to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Our gospel reading comes to us from Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Let us listen to the word of God. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason, these powers are at work in him. But others said, it is Elijah, and others said, it is a prophet like one of the old prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? She replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of his regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As you can tell, I didn't share anything about the story because it's seductive and manipulative, gruesome, intriguing. Uh, For the children's time, I just talked about what kind of prop I'm using because it is... uh, Kind of like the Game of Thrones, this story. Now with John the Baptizer out of the way, Herodias would sit back in her chair. She'd be pleased because no one can now say that she's illegitimate to be Herod's wife. After reading this gross story, we can almost imagine Queen Herodias saying, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the most powerful of them all? But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's first see what drove Herodias into wanting John the baptizer's head. Everyone knew that Herod had divorced his wife to be with his brother's wife, Herodias. But most did not voice their opinion about this unpopular affair. Now, John the Baptist was the only one bold enough to speak up against their sin. He didn't mind sticking his nose into political matters of the day. And Herod's job approval rating was most likely declining because John was speaking out and stirring up these religious leaders. 
John the Baptist infuriated Herodias when he stuck his nose into her business. She didn't like it one bit. She wanted to have John the Baptist out of the picture for doing this, so Herod put him in prison to keep John quiet. Now, Herodias is a manipulative schemer in the story. She found a way into Herod's life, and wealth and power took control of her when she married this ruler. Somebody was messing things up, and this somebody needed to be stopped. So tonight, in front of the most powerful and wealthy in all the land, she would make her final move. After her daughter's provocative dance elicited Herod's generous promise, she knew he could not back down from this request. So when her daughter approaches her, she said, I want the baptizer's head. In one swift move, she displayed her power effortlessly in front of all, and she now had ultimate power, and nobody would dare get in her way again. How could she get ahead in the world? She could leave her husband aside and go after his brother, the ruler. How could she stay in power? She needed to quiet this loud, obnoxious baptizer who was stirring up the Jewish leaders in the crowds. It was all about her and her motives, not about anybody else. She helped herself, and it didn't matter to her one bit if some small, noisy peon was crushed for saying things he shouldn't have in the first place. Although we might not take it as far as Herodias does, somehow our culture, this me, me, me mentality, isn't too far-fetched in our day and age. It's become part of our everyday language, our society has moved to this type of thinking over many years. The automobiles brought, bought not because they're better for our world, but because they look sporty and show our personality. Gadgets, the latest cell phones, techie things, you know, the fun stuff to show off to your coworkers or friends. Those walk-in closets full to the brim with clothes, yet nothing looks just right. Our culture has taught this me, me, me mentality to our children and our children's children. Advertisements want us to feel like we deserve nice things. They get us to feel that we are entitled to luxuries, all the while teaching us that we are the most important. After living in Africa as a missionary for a year, I saw with new eyes how our nation likes to boast about how powerful and entitled we are economically, militarily. Even in a pandemic, the richest and most powerful nations get vaccinated first. Our culture in every way pushes us to think about me. With our individualistic culture that breathes on us every day, we sometimes stand before the mirror like Herodias. We might even say, mirror, mirror on the wall. Let's get back to our story. Now, it may look like selfishness prevails in the story. John the Baptist's head is on a platter. He was the only one brave enough to speak the truth, but was silenced by the prison walls and finally silenced by a beheading. He spoke the truth, and now he's dead. So where's the grace in this story? It seems like the truth of God is silenced by the power of Herodias. 
Somehow she wins in this ruthless world where the ones who don't look out for themselves are stepped upon. And the selfishness of Herodias led to the death of John the baptizer. And to you and me, it doesn't seem fair because he's killed for speaking the truth. It's not fair that when he called them on their sin, he's put to death. Somehow it seems like God takes a step back and lets the world's power and selfishness prevail. What is God doing? Why did John the Baptist have to die? Why doesn't God protect the whistleblower? Why does Herodias win? Where's the grace? It might be hard to see because the grace is tucked away in the last few words. After the prison, after the party, after the dancing, after John the Baptist is killed, it's the last little detail. It says they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The text takes us in that last verse to a tomb. Now, where have we heard about a tomb before? Could it be that John the Baptist's unjust death is foreshadowing Christ's unjust death? Christ, who later speaks the ultimate truth of God, is tortured and put to death on a cross and is then laid in a tomb. And it's in Christ's empty tomb where we see the grace in this story. For God doesn't allow the world's power and selfishness to prevail. God never allows the world's power and selfishness to win. It's hard for us to get our heads around this, but to those who know about Christ's empty tomb, know that in the end, God doesn't allow sin of any kind to prevail. It's in the empty tomb where we find the answer of grace. The tomb of John the Baptist points forward to the empty tomb of Christ where forgiveness and grace prevail. Above the desk of one of the most influential theologians of our time, Karl Barth, hung a reproduction of Matthias Grunewald's 16th century Isenheimer altarpiece. Now, this is one of my favorite stories. In fact, it's so good, I've probably shared it before, but I wanna show you this picture. I hope you can see it. It's a little distance for some of you, so I'll do my best to describe it, and if you wanna come up later to look at it closer. Christ is in the center, his arms stretched, his body weighed down on the cross. He is pierced, emaciated, colorless, dark, and gray, and lifeless. To the left of the painting, you see John, the beloved disciple in a red cloak, holding Mary, the mother of Jesus. They were there at the cross. They were filled with grief and horror. To the right of Jesus, in color, stands someone who doesn't belong there. Someone who was beheaded years before, it's John the Baptist, clothed in unkempt camel's hair with bare feet. One hand, he's holding scripture, and his other arm is pointing with his long, bony finger to the crucified Christ. He doesn't belong here. The meaning of the entire painting is that John the Baptist pointed to Christ 
with his long bony finger, even if it meant death. Karl Barth said that the church is called by God to be like John the Baptist, is called to do one thing above everything else, to point with its long bony finger to what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That's why this painting was hung above Bart's desk. To remind him daily as he wrote, although our culture calls us to be self-absorbed, power-hungry individuals who are mainly concerned about me, 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 we see signs when selfishness doesn't and shouldn't prevail. Anytime when we are gracious to others, anytime we see others who are gracious, sin doesn't prevail. We're called by Christ to go and do likewise. We're called to be gracious like Christ is gracious. We're called to point our long bony finger to Christ because God's graciousness prevails. And on our good days, many of us do just that. By the grace of God, we point with our long bony finger to Christ by speaking and living the truth of the gospel. When we live in the midst of a pandemic and we reach out to a neighbor, when we collect food for the hungry, when we speak up for people who don't get paid a living wage, when we learn more about Christ through Bible studies and Sunday school, when we support the youth in their projects, when we take time to listen to a weary soul, when we deliver food and pray for those who can't come to church, when we spend long hours and late nights doing Christ's work, when we help the poor and lift up the oppressed, when we cheer someone up, we point our long bony finger to Christ. Another way we know selfishness doesn't prevail is when we allow people to shower us with grace, even though that's hard for some of us Midwesterners. When we're recipients of grace, when our friends listen to us, when we're having a difficult time, when people send us cards and flowers when we're in the hospital, when our loved ones celebrate with us on our birthdays and anniversaries, when people take care of us through thick and thin, that's when we see the long bony finger pointing to Christ. These things remind us that selfishness does not prevail in our world. We see and feel God's grace triumphing in our lives, and we hear mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the most powerful of them all? And the reply, not Herodias, Jesus, the servant and king of us all, is the most powerful and most gracious in all the land. And our job is to be the long, bony finger pointing to grace, pointing to Jesus, even if we have to be countercultural. Point to Jesus, the most powerful and gracious in all the world. In the name of our Father, of our Son, and of our Holy Spirit. Amen. The congregation and visitors can now enter through the east or North Doors. Our in-person service starts at 10 a.m. We do, however, ask that you keep your mask on while moving about in the building. 
In the sanctuary, there are two sections, one for vaccinated and one for unvaccinated individuals. The ushers will guide you to the section of your choice. Those in the vaccinated section can now sing without a mask. Join us at www.facebook.com slash firstpresjacks slash and join our Monday First Press Jacks community group, which meets at 7 p.m. every Monday. This is a question, answer, and sharing group with the pastor. This is a private room, and you will be asked a few questions before entering to make sure you are a human and not a robot. Presbyterians with a Purpose is another program available at the First Presbyterian Church of Jacksonville for individuals needing to contact someone during these challenging times of the pandemic. You can visit that link. Just visit our homepage and find the link for Presbyterians with a Purpose. We also offer a Sunday live service starting at 9.55 a.m. You can visit www.firstpresjax.org donate and make your contribution there. Or send contributions to First Presbyterian Church, 870 West College, Jacksonville, Illinois, 62650. You also can contribute through your bank using bill pay. If an account number is needed, please use 870-870-870. Our phone number is 217-245. 4189. Our email is office at firstpresjacks.org. That's office at f i r s t p r e s j a x dot o r g. 